0: Men, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, devoting one more sermon to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. We've been working through, since January, through the book of Acts, and we made it as far as chapter 2. But I promise we will continue with the rest of the book. We're taking our time here. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. It's just the word of the Lord. Lord, your word is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is also a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. Father, as we continue in the book of Acts, Lord, and as we look forward to what we will see later on in the book of Acts, And for anyone who's ever read through the Book of Acts, they well know that there is. This is a book that shows us the power of the Spirit of God upon the believer as they go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what happens when people believe in that gospel. It is your word that makes the gospel effective in the lives of others. It is your word that makes through the Spirit that makes it effective in our lives. And so we pray for the Spirit's work in our lives as we think about this passage, as we think about the sermon before us. Would you take your word and plant it into our hearts and cause it to grow and let it produce The first fruits of what, hopefully, Lord willing, will be much more fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A common metaphor in the scriptures is first fruits, and you don't necessarily have to be sort of a a theologian, or you don't even have to be a farmer or somebody who works the ground or a gardener to understand what the scriptures mean when it talks about first fruits. In fact, you're actually much more familiar with it than you realize So take for instance, when the days get much longer, when the school season comes to a close, when Memorial Day arrives, then you are sort of seeing the first fruits of summer. They give you this sort of this confidence, this assurance that that summer is right around the corner. They give us this, perhaps this delight, this joy, this anticipation that finally the summer season is coming. Or take, for instance, a movie trailer, a two-minute trailer that's intended to be sort of a foretaste of the coming attraction, the full length of the movie, intended to sort of, in a way, whet your appetite for what's coming. The scriptures often use this agricultural metaphor of first fruit to help us to look forward to something and to set our expectations in the right place. And so, this idea of first fruits is really the reality or the theme that ties this sermon together today. Christ Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God. And in this gospel, we see then that it produces a first fruit of salvation. And that's what's beginning to take place here in chapter 2, pointing us to a great harvest that as we proceed throughout the book of Acts, we'll begin to see for ourselves. So first, let us begin with Christ as first fruit. as we consider the passage this morning. So if you've been following along with us, through the book of Acts and the first couple of sermons here in Acts chapter 2. We see here this is the day of Pentecost or known as the Feast of Weeks. This is 50 days after the day of Passover. Jews from all different nations coming to Jerusalem to bring the first fruits of their harvest, to bring into the Lord as a way to thank the Lord for his provision, for his care, for his generosity, as a way to honor him and as a way to put their trust in the Lord as they eagerly wait for God to continue to generously provide for his people. But, not only are these Israelites coming to Jerusalem to bring their first fruits, but according to the scriptures, God's people are also identified as God's first fruit. So, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So here we see Israel is identified as God's first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate of it, like for example, Egypt in enslaving God's people, incurred guilt and disaster came upon them. And in this way we see that Israel is the apple of God's eye, his treasured possession among all peoples. So they are the first fruit of God. In addition to this, there's something else that's interesting that's related to this idea of first fruit that we also get from the Old Testament. In Israelite households, the firstborn of the home was considered to be the first fruit of one's strength. So for example, Jacob, when he gathers his children together and blesses Reuben, his firstborn, he identifies him as the first fruits of his strength. Deuteronomy also, for example, talks about the right of the firstborn and is considered to be the first fruit of man's strength. Psalm seventy eight fifty one. It says that God struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruit of their strength in the tents of Ham. So not only was this idea sort of particular to Israel, but even to surrounding nations. The firstborn is considered to be the first fruit of one's strength. Now, consider these things, Israel being the first fruit of God's harvest, the firstborn being as the first fruit of one's strength. The other thing about Israel in the Old Testament is that Israel is oftentimes identified as God's firstborn as well. So if you read the Exodus, it talks about God and he relates to his people as his firstborn then also consider how the scriptures identify Jesus Christ. Now, time doesn't allow for me to really do an in-depth theological study on how Jesus is identified in the Old Testament and how that relates to Israel and how that relates to the New Testament. But if we consider the the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, this is after Joseph and Mary... Uh, flee Jerusalem because Herod is after every firstborn in the house in Israelite households. After Jesus was born, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So that's first quoted in the book of Hosea. So when Hosea says, Out of Egypt I called my son, it's intended to be prophetic, pointing to this very event of Joseph and Mary taking the child Jesus and fleeing from Israel to go to Egypt for safety until it is safe for them to return back to their home. And it's saying this is pointing to Jesus Christ, who is God's Son. Not only that, but we consider that Israel is also considered to be God's firstborn, that we see then that Jesus is considered to be representative of the people of Israel, that the people have their identification in Jesus. Not all Israel, but only true, believing, faithful Israel is identified in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you consider that passage, you cannot help but think about Exodus as well, and the Israelites being considered God's firstborn, and he calls them out to the Exodus out of Egypt. So in a way, the scriptures are telling us that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true people of God. And Colossians identifies Jesus as the firstborn, firstborn of all creation, a passage we'll look at in a moment. And Jesus as the firstborn, at the Son of God, as the true Israel, what do we see in the life of Jesus? We see in Jesus the strength of God on display. And certainly throughout the scriptures, we see the powerful workings of God throughout his mighty acts from the exodus, to causing the sun to stand still in a moment of war and many other miracles. All to display his incredible strength. And then when we turn to the gospels in the New Testament, what do we see? We see the Son of God also showing the strength of God in Himself. As he performs miracles, as he performs signs and wonders. But even in those, as incredible as those miracles are, in the life of Jesus, the most vivid and powerful display of the strength of God and the Son of God is in the gospel itself. Because it is the gospel that transforms a sinner into a saint, that delivers those from the domain of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of the beloved Son, the kingdom of light. It is in the gospel that we see the strength and the power of God so vividly on display. And while Jesus is certainly considered or identified as God's Son, God's firstborn, it does not mean that He has this, this beginning as if He was created, but no, He is divine. Colossians 1.15 says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And there He's speaking about His status. We're thinking about hierarchy, that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is before all things. Jesus is above all things. And continuing in the passage, he speaks to his divinity again, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, as the divine Son of God, displays the power of God. And most vividly, in the gospel. And it is through the gospel that it then is is produced the first fruits of this coming harvest of salvation. And speaking of first fruits, Jesus is also the first fruit of something else, and that is the resurrection as well. But more on that a little bit later. So Jesus becomes His resurrection, His death, burial, resurrection, His ascension unto heaven becomes the first fruit of this coming salvation. Like because He is the first fruit, more fruit than is coming. But let's not devalue the cross, right? not, much, not like a trailer where the, the trailer is not supposed to be this, as big as the actual movie, or that the first fruit is supposed to be sort of the, the, the pattern of what is coming, which is supposed to be greater. We're not saying that Jesus is lesser than the harvest itself. But what Jesus' cross and what Jesus accomplishes through the gospel gives us only just a foretaste of what is coming. And still, the cross itself is the pinnacle of the glory of Jesus Christ. So certainly not intending to devalue the meaning of the cross, but only to point us to the fact that more is coming, that the cross produces an incredible work through what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection and it is through the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ that then believers the early believers are the first fruits of that salvation which is our second point believers as first fruits the Spirit of Jesus Christ is necessary because it is, the, it is the Spirit that applies the work of Christ unto our lives. Outside of the Spirit of Christ, working in our hearts, the cross, is this event that remains outside of us. But it is the Spirit that takes that work and applies it to the life of the believer through their faith in Jesus Christ. And here in this context, here in chapter 2, we see the celebration of the first fruits of harvest. When the first fruit of God, that is the people of Israel, are coming to Jerusalem, bringing their first fruits of their harvest, not knowing, right, once we move on and we'll see the preaching of Peter at Pentecost and the results of that, what we'll then see is that these first fruits of God, Actually, become the first fruits of this salvation harvest through the Spirit of God as the gospel is preached. And in this way they become the earliest believers, the very first fruit of this salvation. In 2 Thessalonians 2:13, the apostle Paul says, speaking to the church in Thessal- Thessal- gosh, Thessalonica. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I think Paul here is speaking specifically or immediately to his audience, which is this church, that they have been chosen to be the first fruits of Christ's salvation, One historian estimates that at the end of the first century, there were not even 10,000 Christians in the world. Whatever that number was, we might say that these were the very first fruits of this coming salvation. The household of Stephanus in Achaia, 1 Corinthians 6.15, were the first believers in Achaia. We might, might consider them to be the first fruits of salvation. Eponitis. Romans 16 says that he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. There's the first fruit. The 3,000 souls who come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ at Apostle Peter's preaching are the first fruits of this salvation. Cornelius, later on, a Gentile, believes him and his household become the first fruit of salvation. And then these other converts in Ephesus, in Lystra, in Antioch, and other places. What we see, or what we will begin to see as we continue through the Book of Acts, is the first fruits of this coming harvest, all because of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer as they go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the very idea of first fruit is that if there is a first fruit, it means that there is more to come. James 1.18 says, "Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth." That we, and I think he's speaking we as in himself and these early believers, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And I think there, James has an expectation that if we, them, are the first fruit, that there's more to come. Many of you know that in our backyard we have two raised garden beds, and one of them is just strawberries. We planted these strawberries years ago and you plant them once, and you don't expect anything. There's nothing that's going to grow that first year, not until the very next year. But once they start growing, they continue to produce each and every year, and you just have to keep weeding it out and continue to keep watering them, but all on its own, it continues to produce fruit each and every year. Now, it comes to a point where you have to sort of dig it all up, and you have to start all over again, but they continue to produce year after year after year. The gospel continues to produce fruit to this very day. And yes, by the end of the first century, there may not have even been 10,000 Christians, but in 2015, according to one Pew research, there were 2.3 billion people in the world who identified as Christians. So it began as this first fruit of this gospel salvation harvest. We see that even to this day, that the harvest continues to produce as the gospel continues to go forth and those con- and his people continue to preach, and God continues to empower his people as gospel witnesses and causing more fruit to grow. Now the difference is that there's no need to replant it like our starberry bushes, There's no need to crucify the Savior again. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was crucified once, and that was all that was necessary in order to continue to produce this incredible harvest of salvation even to this very day. And we stand here today as part of that harvest. We are here today because there were those first fruits that came before us, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus, it tells us in the Scriptures, became also the first fruit of something more, and that is resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. One Christian author writes, Paul is saying here in this passage, the resurrection of christ and of believers cannot be separated why because to extend the metaphor as paul surely intends christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest that includes the resurrection of believers right if there was no resurrections to follow the resurrection of jesus christ then jesus christ's resurrection would not be identified as a first fruit because what would it be the first fruit of but because Jesus' resurrection is identified as the first fruit, it means that there is more fruit coming, and that, is, that applies to us. That means that Jesus is the forerunner of a resurrection, that he becomes the type of a pattern of resurrection for those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is intended to help us to look forward to our future resurrection and for us to set our hope in that. Movie trailers are intended to whet your appetite for the actual movie. Right? Not to satisfy you. You don't watch a movie trailer, two-minute movie trailer, and say, wow, that was a great movie. I understand the whole gist of it. I understand the, accompli- the, the, the plot. I understand how it's going to end. Right? The, the trailer is not intended to give you all that information. But just to whet your appetite for the coming attraction. First fruits of this harvest that we begin to see in the book of Acts is intended to whet your appetite for the actual harvest of fruit that is coming. The summer seasons of the Christian life, God permits in order to whet your appetite for something more, for something better. Now God surely does the same things through seasons of suffering in its own unique way. But the seasons of plenty, when you see the hand of God, when you see God providing, when your life might be characterized by comfort and peace and security that's found in the love of God, those are intended to be the first fruits of something that is coming, something greater, something that is secured for you, which you will certainly receive. We consider the meals, when we sit down and have a meal, and we bless our meal, we praise the Lord, we thank Him for providing, but this also is intended to point us to something more, and that is to the great banquet that is waiting for us at the table of Jesus Christ. What is a gathering of God's people on Sunday mornings intended to point us to? they're intended to point us to the great day when we will step into paradise and be joined with Christ and with all of our siblings in Christ where we will worship the Lord Jesus in a greater degree than we are able to in this life what is god's daily provision for you intended to point you to it's not intended for you to just be to rest satisfied and content in god's gifts so you might rest contented and satisfied in the one who gives you those gifts and to set your expectations on the gracious provision that is coming for all those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ where Christ will reward all of his people based on the things that they do here in this life according to the scriptures. And the, rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intended to f- fix our eyes on our future resurrection, when we will receive new and glorified bodies. The appetizers are not intended to satisfy you, but to whet your appetite for the main course. And yet many of us might at times be content with just the appetizer and not care for the main dish, when the main dish is the most important thing And God is holding for His people, securing for His people this incredible main dish of glorification, of everlasting joy, eternal life in the paradise of Christ. For here this morning, you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're extending an invitation to you as well for you to take part in this great banquet that God is reserving for all of his people. But to accept it means believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Otherwise, the Bible makes clear that apart from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this banquet is not for you, but instead you'll be giving to an eternal misery where you'll daily drink of the cup of the wrath of God. And you will eat for all of eternity the torments of hell. But Jesus Christ is inviting you today. He's extending this invitation to you to come to the banquet, feast on God's great and precious gifts for you eternal life, paradise with God, joy, everlasting peace by believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior and trusting in Him. The forgiveness of your sins. And he will give you the assurance. He will speak to your necessities of your life with comfort and strength and encouragement. So with God's gifts that He generously and graciously gives unto us, let us be thankful. Let us rejoice, let us honor God for these things, but let us remember that they are intended only to whet our appetites for the greater things that God has reserved for all those who love Him. Thirdly, unity, unity and first fruit. Again in verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I'm actually looking forward to moving on so I don't have to read these, these nations, these languages anymore. But listen to what they're doing. I mean, this is what the Spirit does. They, they are indwelt with the Spirit of God. They're not just saying anything, but they're declaring the mighty works of God in all these various different languages. There's 10 plus nations or languages represented here from east to west. And what they're doing is declaring the mighty work of God. Isn't that what the Spirit does in life of a believer? It enables the believer it compels the believer to declare the mighty works of God. I mean, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. What do we do? We hear of the mighty works of God as it, through his word. We worship to the mighty works of God as we sing on Sunday mornings. When we share testimonies with others, what are we doing but declaring the mighty works of God? When we're going out and we share the gospel with unbelievers, what are we doing but declaring the mighty work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? In Genesis 10, here we see the the table of nations, and it's about 70 nations that are descended from Noah, coming through his three sons, and then right after that we have the incident of the Tower of Babel, which recounts the division of these nations by God dispersing them and giving them various languages. Now, as we consider this passage here in Luke, so I don't think Luke is making a sort of a one-to-one connection as to sort of like look at this reversal of what's happened in the book uh, or in the Tower of Babel, but it is significant, significant to consider. As you consider the nations that were once dispersed speaking these various different languages, and you have the Jews coming from different nations coming together in this one place, and you hear The people of God, these early believers, these first fruits indwelt by the Spirit, speaking the mighty works of God in different languages, you can't help but glorify God because He is bringing the nations together under one gospel, under one Christ, under one Spirit, declaring the mighty works of the Lord. And while certainly they are all Jews who are coming together in this event, but remember, they are the first fruits of what is to come. Acts 2:21, so later on, in Acts chapter two, it says, "And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved." In Romans 9:23, the Apostle Paul speaks about God making known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, right? That is us. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That is talking about you and I. We are the Gentiles who are included in this glorious gospel, we are the Gentiles who, is, who are included in this harvest of salvation. Brought together through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, making us one people under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in this way, we see that the gospel produces a harvest, not of one particular fruit, but all kinds of fruits, belonging to one harvest. The Bible uses several other metaphors to help us to understand this oneness, this unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, the scriptures talk about a cultivated olive tree and Gentiles being uh, sort of broken branches being grafted into that cultivated olive tree. So we're grafted in by faith in this cultivated olive tree. Another metaphor that the Bible uses is one body. Alienated from the promises of God that were once reserved specifically for Israel, now Gentiles are included and made as one body, with Christ as the head. Another metaphor that the Scriptures use is one household. A Jew and Gentile, through faith in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, belong to the same household. And in this way, we see the first fruits of this harvest, and at the harvest, including Gentiles and we today being included in that glorious gospel harvest through the work of Jesus Christ. Now we've been focusing much more broadly in this idea of first fruits, but I want to conclude in this last point by focusing much more narrowly, speaking specifically of the individual believers' first fruits. So fourth and finally, the believers' first fruits. Bible commands us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in that passage, we see that there is a sense of responsibility placed upon us. Bear fruit, the scriptures say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What the gospel does is that it sort of makes each and every one of us sort of a vine dresser or a vineyard owner or a gardener. And with the Spirit's help, we are called to maintain the garden of our lives. The Lord, through the gospel, planted the garden. He tilled the soil of your heart. He made it ready to receive the gospel. He watered the seeds with the water of His Spirit, and He caused the seeds to grow. And this is nothing that we could have done. This is only a work of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But now we must, out of a love for the Lord, Continue to maintain the garden that God so generously and graciously planted in our hearts through His Spirit. And so we must maintain the first fruits of our Christian life. And let me give you just four first fruits that we are called to maintain, and you might add more, but I think these are the most essential, the ones that are immediately born when one believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the ones that you immediately seize when they believe in Christ as Savior. And one fruit that we are called to maintain that we see in the life of the believer is the fruit of repentance. And this requires us to maintain a vigilant eye upon the fruit. Any gardener will tell you they have to keep an eye on their garden. Right during the spring and summer seasons, as I look at our garden beds, as I walk around the perimeter of of my house, there's always weeds. And you had to stay on top of it to so where, like, you're doing it on a weekly basis. Sometimes, more than once a week, you are weeding out your garden. And in the same way, we are giving a responsibility to maintain the fruit of repentance in our lives by keeping a vigilant eye on it and making sure that we are plucking out the weeds of sin. Because the weeds of sin will choke out to the life of repentance or the fruit of repentance. And that requires us to be able to. Firstly, see sin as sin. I did landscaping years ago, and I had no idea what I was doing, and I was tasked with with weeding, and I hated weeding. It was so boring, so tedious. But initially, I didn't know what to weed, because I I I couldn't always tell what the difference was. I couldn't tell if something was a weed or something wasn't. So in the same way, in order to pluck out the, the weeds of sin in one's own life, you need to first be able to distinguish between what is right and good and what is wrong and what is sin. And with that, you need to know the Word, read the Word, study the Word. But that's not always our problem. Sometimes our problem is that even though we know sin, we still allow it to grow. We permit it to grow and fester we have to quickly uproot the weeds of sin in our hearts because the longer it grows, the harder it is to pluck out because the deeper its roots grow which means that it will be much more painful to root out. So get at the weeds sooner rather than later get rid of them before they grow too big. So consider, what are those weeds of sin that perhaps you might be allowing to grow in your life? And will you root them out immediately, even today? Do what is necessary to root them out for the sake of this root of repentance. Another fruit that we're called to maintain is the fruit of faith water the fruit of your faith. Don't let it become too thirsty. Don't let it become weak. And there are some things that have a tendency to sort of suck the water out of the fruits of your faith. Philippians gives us one example. Philippians 4.6 tells us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, anxiety has a way of draining this water, the hydration, out of the fruit of your faith. So, the way to maintain the fruit of your faith vibrant, healthy, and strong is to pray when you are anxious. What else might suck the water, the hydration out of your faith? Prayerlessness. Are you praying regularly before the Lord? Because prayer is an exercise of faith. We talked about repentance and obedience. Repentance and obedience is also a way of watering the fruit of your faith. For repentance, in a way, is walking in faith daily, each and every day. So ask yourself is your faith thirsty? Is your faith dehydrated? Consider your prayer life. Consider your walking in obedience to the Lord. Consider the fruit that's growing in your life right now. Is the fruit of anxiety growing in your life right now? Is it how about is it the fruit of bitterness? Is it the fruit of discontentment? The way to keep your fruit watered and healthy and vibrant and growing is that for every time for every five minutes you spend in anxiety spend 10 minutes praying for every five minutes you spend in bitterness spend 10 minutes praying pray and pray and pray before the lord the lord is eager to hear your prayers the lord delights to hear the prayers of his saints Another fruit we're called to maintain is hope. It is the light at the end of the tunnel that encourages our hope. It is the dawning sun which breaks the oppression of the darkness that vivifies hope. Therefore, maintain the fruit of your hope by making sure that it is getting enough sun. And that means believing in truth. I love what Elizabeth Elliot says, though very briefly, but powerfully in her book. Suffering is never for nothing. She talks about Psalm 23, a psalm that most of us are familiar with, if not all of us, especially where it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Have you ever noticed there that the reason why the psalmist trusts in the Lord or says he has no fear is not because there's a change of his circumstances, but because he trusts in his God. That is why he fears no evil. Even though there is darkness surrounding him, he's not afraid because he trusts in his God. Or consider the story of Abraham. I'm always struck by what it says in Romans chapter 4, the end of Romans chapter 4 where it says that Abraham believed or believed in hope against all hope. In other words, everything in his life gave him reasons to not put his hope and the promise of God. I mean, consider your old age. Consider the barrenness of your wife. There is no way that you can have a child. It is physically impossible. And yet he believed against all hope. He had hope against all hope. And that's because he gave greater attention to the God who made promises than to the impossibilities of his life. And that is how we keep the light shining upon the fruit of our hope. Trusting in the God who is faithful. Trusting in the God who made these precious promises to you in his word. Focus specifically on those promises that point you to something greater that is coming to all those who believe. Consider the Psalms. I encourage you to take a look at the Psalms and read through the Psalms because oftentimes you'll see the psalmist in calamity, in dire circumstances, and yet trusting in God even though his situations in the moment haven't changed. And our tendency is to oftentimes ask, well, what if God, yes, I, 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 I'm walking through this valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I, uh, because I believe in you, because I trust you, but what about this? Or what if this? Or what if this happens? Or what about that? Don't entertain such thoughts. God just simply calls you to trust. Don't worry about the details. God will take care of the details. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's, today's troubles is sufficient for itself. Trust in God today, and tomorrow you do the same thing. One author writes, theological hope is an implicit surrender to the help of another, and that is God. Are you surrendering yourself? Are you surrendering your situations? Are you surrendering your season of trial or even your season of suffering into the hands of the Lord? Trusting that the Lord will take care of you. And lastly, the fruit of love. The love of God and the gospel is what creates the new vineyard in our hearts in the first place. So, love is the natural fruit that is produced as long as one maintains the fruit of faith and repentance and hope. Love for God and love for God's people is a natural fruit that's produced with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it must be a fruit that we maintain. Sometimes gardeners will give fertilizer or some kind of nutrients to the things that they're growing to help it to grow more vibrant, to produce more. In the same way, we ought to fertilize the fruit of our love in our hearts, giving it the nutrients that it needs in order to grow and prosper. And what are those nutrients? Those nutrients are doing. It is serving, it is giving, it is loving others. I said last week that the church, the early church in the book of Acts is marked by this togetherness. They're together as one, devoting themselves to the same things. They're coming together. They're sharing the gospel with others together. All because of this love for God and this love for others. And it's this love that compels them to do all these things together and to do these things for one another ask yourself, is your love for God and others becoming increasingly colder? Has it become lukewarm? Has it no longer as vibrant as it might have been perhaps earlier in your Christian walk with the Lord? You're not without hope. There is a way to warm the love of your heart and that is by applying love. And that's, what, that's what we're called to do. We maintain this fruit of love by its application, by loving others, by serving others, by doing things for others. Not just because the Lord commands us to, but because we desire to help others, because we desire to love others and to leave them in a better place than when we found them. So, these are but the first fruits. Remember that first fruit always points to something much greater. The first fruit of repentance. The first fruit of repentance points us to the day when we will one day be glorified, when there will be no more sin. Could you understand that? That one day we will be with Christ and there will be no more need for repentance because there will be no more sin in our hearts. Praise God for that. That is what this first fruit points us to. The first fruit of faith points us to the moment when our faith will one day give way to sight, when we will finally behold the face of our precious Savior. The first fruit of hope points us to the day when all of our hopes and all the promises of God will finally and fully be realized when we take that first step into eternity into the paradise of God, and all anguish, and all terror, and all fear, and all sin, and all anxiety, and all suffering, and all distress, and all evil, will be non-existent. The first fruit of love points us to the glorious day when we will fully comprehend the great love of God for us in a greater degree that we cannot even fathom right now on this side of life. This first fruit of love points us to the day when we will be able to express a greater love for God than we are physically able to now in this life and express that love towards others who are joined with us in the great paradise of Christ. So may the first fruits of the Spirit cause us today to long for more fruit now and anxiously anticipate what's coming. those who love the Lord and are loved by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great work of your Spirit upon our lives and how your Spirit makes it possible for us to grow these, these precious fruits Lord, let them always be a delight to us. Lord, help us to maintain the garden of our hearts with the assistance of your Spirit. Let us continually be marked by repentance and faith hope, and love. And let us, help us, Lord, to look forward to more fruit. God, and as we consider the many ways in which you are generous towards us today, Lord, help us not find our satisfaction and contentment in those gifts as precious as they are, but let it it help us to use those things to further enhance our delight in the God who is generous towards us, and to, to look forward to the incredible treasures and inheritance that you have secured for all those who love you. Lord, we thank you and we trust you for these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.